What a joy to be together. Isn't it a joyous thing? This Friday night, we can be together again from 10 to midnight. If you'd like to come out for <clears throat> friends at midnight. So that'll be fun. We are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, putting in it about verse 12. So navigate over there. Did you know that communes are thriving all over the world? I thought it was kind of a dead thing, but that's not true. The preferred name for communes now, the politically correct name, is intentional communities. That's something I bet you didn't know. That's why you didn't know that there were communes, because they're intentional communities. There are as many as 10,000 in the United States alone. Not all of them are religious. It's trendy to live intentionally as a community for ecological reasons. You're not called to start or settle in a commune, but you are to have a strong sense of community. Christians are connected with one another, and we are expected to experience those connections in community with other Christians in the gatherings of local churches. Our text brings out three aspects of living in community with other Christians. And those three aspects can be captured by three words. The first of them is government. And by government, I mean that the church community has leaders. We read about the community of dynamic leadership in verses 12 and 13. Paul says, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and <clears throat> be at peace among yourselves. Now, the church was less than a year old at this time. You remember I keep telling you Paul was only there for a few weeks, maybe three Sabbaths, maybe three weeks total. Uh, now he's writing back to them after uh, receiving a report from Timothy about them, and so it's maybe a year after the church was founded, and by definition, everyone in it was still a young Christian. Uh, there was, Paul came into the town, there were no Christians, he left, and there was a thriving church, but they were all very young Christians. Some among them, however, were raised up to be leaders. And it may be that there was a problem with submission to leadership as the members felt they were all more or less spiritual equals. And the truth is, in the body of Christ, we are more or less spiritual equals. Uh, we all have the same standing in grace. We all have the same access to the throne, those kinds of things. Uh, no, no one really should ever think that uh, a person in leadership is, you know, has a, uh, a greater standing in that sense. Uh, it's just a matter of gifting. God raised up certain people in their midst to lead that church. It was a matter of gifts, not growth. Church leaders are supernaturally gifted to accomplish their work. And I sometimes think that... Uh, the more difficult it is to believe that of somebody, the more you can see that God is at work, if you understand what I mean. If you, if you look at your leaders and you say, man, I, I can't figure out how those guys got to be the leaders of a church, then that's, I can, it's grace. It's the grace of God. If you're looking at people and, well, that, that guy's the most intelligent, knowledgeable, mature, uh, handsome person at our church, and so therefore he qualifies for leadership. Well, then we're looking on the outward. And so it's, it's totally a matter of gifting. 
And that's why, you know these reality shows? I don't know if you watch any of them, but the ones that, um, or the competition shows maybe where they judge, like when Simon Cowell was on American Idol, you know, that kind of a thing, where you're just brutally honest with people and stuff and 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 um, you know you just say hey you're you you have no talent whatsoever and sometimes in the church uh, it's it's not that you know people think well why are you doing what you're doing I because God raised you up to do it he raised me up to do this and so what's the big deal I mean nobody said you had to have talent nobody said you had to have you know ability you just had to uh, be the one that's gifted to do that and so we're all on a level playing field but God gives us gifts as he desires and then we work together with those gifts um, the church leaders are supernaturally gifted to accomplish their work uh, and some of that is described here um, here at Calvary our leadership structure is a pastor teacher who's supported by elders who's supported by deacons and that's as deep as I can go into it because that's all there is. There's a big, if you get out into literature, Christian literature, there's all this, you know, consternation about the proper form of church government. And uh, we've talked about this many times before. There's, there's basically three forms of government. Um, there's what they call Presbyterian. That's a church that's ruled by a group of elders. Uh, who are co-equal, except that in those churches there are almost never co-equal elders. There's still always somebody who's in charge. But that's okay. They let them think that they're co-equal if that's, if that's what they want to believe. Then there's congregational government. That's where everybody gets together and everybody votes on everything and everybody decides. And, and there's some, actually there's some merit to that, except that um, in the long run you've got people who are not invested at all in the church who are making these huge decisions, so then you have to get into membership and you have to figure out who really is a member and what qualifies you as a member so that only the correct people are voting. I mean, you know, you don't want just somebody coming in off the street being the swing vote. There's a movie a few years ago where Kevin Costner was the, he was the one vote to decide who was going to be president. There was a dead tie. And I didn't see the movie, but I could tell it was going to be lame. But, uh, it, you know, the, I can still use it as an example. And so you don't want to be deadlocked over whether you're going to, you know, paint the bathroom trailer the same color or not and then have some guy come in off the street who has never been there before and be the tie vote or the swing vote because he's a congregational rule, you know. And then there's what they call uh, Episcopal, uh, and that is, it comes from the Greek word for episkopos, which means bishop, or it, it, in our thinking, it comes down to a pastor teacher who sort of is you know, is the, the guy that sets direction and tone for the church, but he needs elders and he needs deacons and, and support people and they all make decisions together and we seek to have a consensus and, and all be on the same page and, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and that has pluses and minuses too. And the reality is all church government is some conglomeration of those three. Uh, usually weighted more towards the Episcopal even though people think that they're Presbyterian. And um, so, you know, um, it, it comes down to the relationship that men have with each other in the church. And there is no one form of church government uh, in, in a really strict legalistic sense, uh, no matter what anybody else wants to tell you. A um, few of the leader's responsibilities are listed. It says they labor among you. This word labor means they toil and strive and they struggle. 
It describes hard work that causes the leader to grow weary. I still occasionally, and I love this, uh, to tell you the truth, occasionally there's somebody who asks me what I do all week. Uh, to, you know, when I'm not at church uh, teaching for the one hour a week that I work here and stuff. And, and I say, man, it's just, you know, there's, there's golf on Monday and racquetball on Tuesday. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to keep busy in Hanford, uh, you know, with all the leisure time that you have. Uh, it says leaders are over you in the Lord. This means they exercise oversight, but in a way that's characteristic of Jesus. They're in the Lord. Jesus' example of being over the disciples is the example that a leader should follow. And leaders admonish you. Admonish literally means to put in mind. It is reminding others of spiritual truth, especially in the sense of appealing to the conscience and the will to encourage believers to obedience. It's not the easiest thing in the world to admonish people. Uh, uh, Josh and I were just at a funeral yesterday where they were finding it really difficult to admonish people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not fun. It's not, so none of these things are fun things. If you want to be a leader, um, God bless you. You know, everybody wants to lead, but uh, it, it's, not, uh, it's not what you think it is. Leaders are resources that the Holy Spirit uses to help you make spiritual progress. You cooperate with God when you do two things in relation to your leaders. You recognize them and you respect them. Recognize means acknowledging that God has placed them over you by His gifting in their lives. If you have a problem, this is why I don't get too annoyed at people when they don't like me. I said, you don't have a problem with me, you have a problem with my boss. Your problem is with God. Because I didn't put myself here. God put me here and the elders that we have and the deacons. So if you're having a problem with the leadership in the church, you take that to God. Go ahead, go over my head, but not to who you think. Go over my head to God and ask him about it. And uh, I'll tell you right now, that's a conversation that's not going to go well. You're going to wish that you hadn't had that conversation. Uh, Respect is the meaning of the word esteem in verse 13. It takes recognizing leaders one step further in that you recognize they are over you for your own good and you thus respect their influence in your life. We all need someone to be accountable to, to be over us in that sense uh, and God uh, puts those people there. Be at peace among yourselves reminds us that leadership in the church and authority in general is very different than what we are used to in the world. Leaders are not to lord over people. They're to be like the Lord and serve. And we, when we're being led, are to submit to biblical authority without causing strife and division. You know, there's some churches now when if you join them to become a member, you have to sign a paper that says you won't criticize the leadership. And so anytime... Anytime they, you come in with a, a complaint, they pull out your file and they say, hey, sorry, just keep your mouth shut. And, uh, you know, but uh, we should just strive to live at peace with each other. We're not going to do that. We're just going to smile at you and say, let's just be at peace. Another aspect of living in community is grace. You see it in verses 14 and 15. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Some of the believers really put a strain on the community of believers in Thessalonica, and this is still true today in community life. The unruly were probably those believers who had quit their jobs to wait for Jesus to rapture them. Their mooching was a strain on the rest of the community. 
The faint-hearted were probably those whose loved ones had fallen asleep in death. They were overcome with grief, focusing only on their loss. The weak in Thessalonica were probably those who were morally weak and struggling with sexual sin, as was discussed in the opening verses of chapter 4. And so that's how it played out in Thessalonica. Regardless of the particular causes, however, all church communities will always have believers who are unruly for some reason, faint-hearted for other reasons, and weak for other reasons. We're to be patient with them and to express our patience by warning and comforting and upholding them. All I'm saying is what you already know, that the church is a place where screwed up people hang out and they tax your patience because you think you're not one of them. But let me tell you, we're all one of them to somebody. And, and uh, the remarkable thing is that the church goes on at all filled with the kind of people that we are. I hope I'm not insulting anybody, but I wouldn't want to be around me most of the time. You know, so, uh, you know, so there are people who act this way. They tax our patients. Um, you're sometimes that person. That's the church. We're to warn. That's the word admonish, which we said meant to put in mind. You're to remind them of spiritual truth. Comfort is translated from words meaning to relate near. The idea is you try to relate to what they are going through and come near to them with words of encouragement. Upholding means support. It's a picture of coming to them in their spiritual distress and holding them up by holding them accountable. You can't list every possible stress that believers can experience when living in community with one another. You can't list every possible strategy for dealing with one another. So Paul gave a principle to follow in verse 15. He said, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. In practical terms, you should desire the very best for every other member of the Christian community and then treat them in a way that promotes what is best for them. Christians living in community should therefore extend grace to one another. We're to be a grace community. Grace Community Church is actually a great name for a church, but it was already taken and so we got stuck with Calvary Chapel. Everybody thinks we're a wedding chapel all the time. People ask me all the time, have we changed our name? Why, are you, why do you always call us Calvary Hanford? So I'm tired of getting calls from people who want to get married here because they think we're a chapel. Actually, I just made that up. But I, I haven't, We haven't changed our name. It's just everybody calls us Calvary Hanford. But when I call us Calvary Hanford, oh, no, we've changed our name. We're no longer affiliated. Chuck Smith is going to rain fire down on us. Not true. The next three verses encourage practical ways grace works in a community of believers. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The last phrase, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, relates to each of the three things that you read about, each of those Rejoicing, praying, giving thanks, that is the will of God for you. It's God's will for you that you rejoice always. Always means always. Remember that the church at Thessalonica was suffering intense persecution and that believers were dying. Nevertheless, Paul told them to have a spirit of rejoicing because life is more than <clears throat> what we experience right here, right now. It's God's will for you that you pray without ceasing. Now, without ceasing means a life that is permeated with prayer, mostly silent prayer in your heart, obviously, but not excluding public praying. 
It's a spirit of prayer that um, we should have, wanting to pray with each other, for each other, uh, especially in our community of believers. And it's God's will for you that in everything you give thanks. Everything means in every circumstance. This is possible when you accept the promise that God works all things out for good to those who love Him and are yielded to His will. You can then thank Him no matter what, knowing everything He allows is for good, uh, your ultimate good and His glory. It's sometimes hard to see that, uh, but that's why we need the exhortation. And, and remember, we're talking, we're in a section here, it's talking about the community life of the believers. This is what we remind ourselves of uh, when we are gracious. And so, um, you know, maybe it's not you tonight that's hurting, but someone else is, and maybe they're faint-hearted or they're unruly or they're weak-minded or whatever. They need to be reminded to rejoice, to pray, <clears throat> to give thanks. And, and um, how many times in our own life, you know, when you've gone to a believer and they've, they've admonished you, told you what you already know. We're always trying to think of things that no one's ever thought of before. Do you realize that? You, you want to be fresh and new, and, and that's why Christians are always running after the newest book that just came out and the newest program. Uh, and really, uh, Peter says it in his epistles, Paul says it here, just remind people of what they already know. It's not a pursuit of what we don't know. It's who we already know and what we already know. And a lot of times you need to just put your hand on somebody and say, hey, let's rejoice in this situation. Are you going through a really tough time at work? Would you consider it persecution? <clears throat> well, probably not because, you know, it doesn't rise to that, but it's sort of. Well, then let's rejoice the way the apostles did and the, the first century disciples did when they were beaten for their faith in Jesus Christ. Have you been really praying about this? Well, no, actually, I've, I've just been whining and complaining about it. So let's pray about it. Let's pray without ceasing. And, and can you give thanks in this situation, knowing that that's the will of God? Oh, man, Gene, you're asking me to do something so hard now, but so easy in the Holy Spirit. And so that's, that's what the community of believers does for one another. We keep ourselves on a spiritual track. You don't want to put your arm around somebody and say, yeah, when I worked there, that guy was a jerk too. And you need to get out of that place or file a grievance or slash his tires or, you know, the, all the things that you want to do as a human being. Say, no, let's, let's rejoice. Let's pray. Let's give thanks. And then somebody will do that for you when you're the one on the other side. Put grace into practice when you do these three things. And living in community with other believers gives you a context to practice them, to be encouraged in them by others who can remind you to rejoice and pray and be thankful. And then the third aspect of living in community in this section is gifts. You see it in verses 19 through 22. <clears throat> Excuse me. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. In the church at Corinth... The exercise of gifts was what we would call charismatic. If you read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you'd actually call them charismaniacs, uh, which is a word that we coined, not to be disrespectful, but Paul said, if you do certain things, people or unbelievers are going to come into your assembly and think you are, what, mad. They're going to think you're crazy for, for the way you're behaving. And so uh, the church at Corinth needed to be corrected about the proper orderly exercise of the gifts of the Holy Spirit when they assembled together. The Thessalonians had the opposite problem. 
They were quenching the exercise of the gifts. They were despising prophecies. Both of those assemblies, Corinth and Thessalonica, were told to test and then hold fast what is good. They were to test the things spoken uh, by the standard of the Word of God, of course, and as long as what was being prophesied, for example, lined up with God's Word, they could receive it as God's encouragement. I, I just, I don't think we have a handle on this. I mean, we're not, you know, we're, we're not the final judge of all this, but just speaking generally, I can't understand why some people want to be so charismatic that they resist being corrected by God's Word and that some people want to be so uh, conservative that they resist being instructed by God's Word and why we have to go to extremes and why we can't just struggle in the middle uh, you know, to, to try and figure out the proper exercise of the gifts of the Spirit. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that, that we have solved that. Uh, I think it's a dilemma that goes on all the time. But it seems like, you know, the pendulum either swings all the way one way or all the way the other way. And it's just a shame. It, it's just really a shame. So Corinth, Paul said, exercise all the gifts, but do it in a proper, decent, orderly way. That's all I'm asking. And then to the Thessalonians, he said, hey, why are you despising prophecy and why are you quenching the spirit the final verse of this section at first seems out of place he says abstain from every form of evil as a standalone verse great spiritual advice it can be translated abstain from every appearance of evil uh, but you have to be a little bit careful using that because it Jesus didn't really abstain from every appearance of evil and I only want to be like Jesus, right? And so Jesus was what? He was accused of being a, a wino, a drunkard, a glutton. Uh, he hung around sinners, and it was assumed that he got drunk with them and partied with them because of his reaching out to them. And so he, he absolutely did not abstain from every appearance of evil in the sense that we sometimes apply this verse that you could never, you know, be seen in certain areas of town or in certain situations. Now, I'm not recommending that we all go to Huggies after church and, and do some bar witnessing. Actually, maybe if all of us went, it would, it would, maybe we should do that some night. All of us just go in there and take over the place. As long as we buy something, they can't kick us out, right? I, some, I think some of you would do it. But anyway, uh, so, you know, so I, I want to just be careful. You know, uh, uh, that's a great verse as a standalone verse, but it's in this context of spiritual gifts. He, he just said, hold fast what is good, abstain from what is evil. He's talking about the same thing, uh, you know, uh, in, in terms of the two uh, poles, one end and the other. Um, in context of the exercise of the gifts during public worship, this has to do with the false exercise of gifts, tongues and the interpretation of tongues and especially prophecy. Paul is saying you need to avoid anything that is judged to be evil. So test it, hold fast to what is good, and if something weird happens, then you know don't be led by that. If you've been around... Um, and again, I, I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, it just happens this way, but if you've been around uh, certain Pentecostal circles, there's a lot of false prophecy that takes place. 
I don't know how else to say it. And a lot of times it's false prophecy that's right in your face. Like, hey, brother, the Lord just showed me that you're a slime ball. I hate to be the one that tells you that, but he, he just, in fact, he gave me a vision of you covered with slime. Uh, the Lord is really angry with you. I had a lady come into the church uh, uh, years ago and, to, and, and uh, she, she stopped to bless me with the prophecy that the hot breath of God was on my neck. I still don't know what that means. I was actually very respectful and I said, well, uh, can you tell me what that means? It should be obvious. Uh, yeah. I guess I'm just not smart enough to know what that means, you know. So there are these false prophecies, and there's people who prophesy about things that not necessarily in a sense of of the future, but they talk about things that are going to happen or, or that should, and then they don't, and then they go on prophesying about new things that never happen. And, you know, I think that's what Paul's talking about. He says you need to avoid false prophecies. And people who are prophesying falsely they, get, they already get the benefit of not being stoned to death in the New Testament era. They don't need to be put on a pedestal to where you think, oh, man, that person, what, that was great. I always tell the story, I'll tell it briefly, of, of a Bible study that was in our home in San Bernardino. And, and one night, a gal, great gal, loved her. You know, she uttered a prophecy. We wrote it down while she was uttering it. It was terrible. I mean, it was just, you know, it was about judgment and doom and gloom, and it was just awful. And, you know, so afterwards, the Bible study leader, it wasn't me, um, I asked, we were friends, you know, until this happened. Uh, but now we continue to be friends. I said, hey, what'd you think about that? And he goes, oh, praise the Lord, prophecy, you know, because he was so excited that there was, you know, if, if you're at a Calvary Chapel that doesn't uh, exercise the gifts and then somebody prophesies you want to jump out of the, you know, your pants or something, you know, you're so excited. And, and so he's all excited. And I said, well, yeah, but what did you think about the prophecy itself? And it, he was stunned. He goes, well, what do you mean? I go, the words themselves, what, what she actually said. And he, she goes, what did she say? We told him, and then he got mad at us, and, and so, you know, like you're not supposed to listen or something. So, so that's what Paul's talking about. Just because something happens doesn't mean it's from the Lord. You understand that, right? I mean, so, so when you go to these meetings, and everybody starts speaking in tongues, and everybody starts prophesying, and people start jumping out windows and, and stuff like that, just because something is happening doesn't mean it's from the Lord. Just because nothing is happening doesn't mean it isn't from the Lord, if you catch my meaning. Now, so we, we don't glory in either extreme, and I'd be the first to admit that we still struggle with the proper exercise of the gifts of the Spirit, but I, I think that's okay. At least we're struggling. We haven't hit a groove where the same thing happens or never happens each week, and that's sadly what happens in so many churches. If you, if you audit certain churches, the same thing happens every week in worship through the same people sometimes. You know, the songs get faster and faster, louder and louder. Then, you know, Aunt Frida gets up and speaks in tongues, and Uncle Joe interprets it as a prophecy, and then everything breaks loose, you know. And, and uh, maybe that's from the Lord. I doubt it. Or in a conservative church where nothing ever happens. 
You know, there's never any thought that there could be an interruption or somebody would, you know, do anything. So um, that's what Paul's talking about in context. He's, he's exhorting the first century church to struggle with the gifts of the Spirit in a proper biblical way. Not, and to, Thess- to the Thessalonians, he's saying, don't despise prophesying. And I think that's a, probably a footnote for all of the speaking gifts, not just uniquely prophecy. And he says, and don't, don't be quenching the Holy Spirit by doing that. A lot of your Christian growth and my Christian growth can only occur if you're in a community of believers. If you're a loner, you'll miss out on the growth provided by interaction with leadership. So if you're not in a community of believers submitted to leadership, then there's a part of your growth is, is going to be stunted because God has, he says in his word many times, raised up leaders over you to equip you and minister to you and all that. So you, you, can't, you can only grow so far apart from involvement in a church. It's impossible to exercise the grace of patience unless you're among some people that test your patience. You know what I mean? So don't, don't think that you're growing in those graces if you're not around people who are driving you crazy and, and teaching you how to, how to live. And you can't exercise speaking gifts to the edification of the body if there is no body to meet with, right? I mean, I'm not saying you can't pray or have a relationship with God, but it's clear that you're not going to be able to bless others with certain gifts if, there are, if you're not in assembly with those people. And so uh, Jesus graciously leaves it up to each of us to determine just how involved we are going to be in our community. He doesn't force us to go to church. He draws us to uh, gather together by his love. And I hope that we're a church that doesn't really put burdens on people, uh, you know, about attendance. We joke with you, you know, sometimes... You know, I've got some regular couples that, that whose attendance is it's spotty. I mean, they would say the same thing. It's spotty. And when they see me at the door, they, they reintroduce themselves to me to make a joke about, ah, we're the so-and-sos, you know, and we, we, we're just trying out your church. And, I, and I, I do my best to just say, hey, I'm glad you're here right now. That's between you and the Lord. Other times, you know, we'll tell people, hey, this is the fourth Sunday in a row I've seen you. You're now an elder, which... Obviously, is not true, except that one person who still thinks he is an elder. But anyway, no, I'm just kidding. So, you know, we're, we try not to be that way. But the truth is, when we get into these areas of Scripture, and I don't need to tell you because you're actually here. I mean, do you, do you, don't you hate being exhorted to do something you're already doing? I mean, not so much exhorted, but, but, you know, kicked in the teeth. You need to be in church. Gene, it's Wednesday night, and, you know, there's, uh, we are in church. But the idea is it's, it's good. But Jesus, he leaves it up to you. He doesn't force you to go to church. He draws you by love. Having a strong sense of community, it, it will guide your decisions about your involvement and how involved you can be or how involved you want to be. If you want my opinion, err on the side of more rather than less involvement. If the question is, should I get more or less involved in the community of of believers, get more involved because all these great areas of growth take place when you're involved. Uh, But that uh, still, that's between you and the Lord.
and you're left to figure that out. We want rules, don't we? We love rules. We want God to tell us how often we're supposed to go to church. We'd love to have him, you know, like when you go to school, you can miss how many days before you can't graduate. I mean, we like that. I used to figure out, you're going to laugh. Well, you won't laugh. You'll believe it of me. I used to figure out how many days I could be absent in high school and still graduate. And then I hoped I didn't actually get sick while I was writing fake notes with my mom's name and stuff like that. Things you can't really do so much anymore in our electronic age. But uh, we got away with a lot, ditching and you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I just, hey, can I get by? And so we're like that as human beings. It's like, hey, what do I need to do to get by? Or, or how can I really, really be spiritual? And God says, hey, just talk to me. I'll tell you how often I want you to go to church. I'll, I'll lay it out for you, but we need to have it in our own personal relationship with the Lord. And if you're worried about <clears throat> or wondering about it, err on the side of coming more rather than less. Um, you'll grow and you'll help others to grow as well.